Before we get into this episode, I want to define some terms for y'all that you may or may not already know. These definitions come from the Human Rights Campaign's website. Let's start with cisgender. Cisgender is a term used to describe a person whose gender identity aligns with the sex assigned to them at birth. For example, when I was born, the doctor told my mother she had a boy. And years later, once I was able to form my own identity, I still identified as that. I am cisgendered. Queer is a term people often use to express a spectrum of identities that are counter to the mainstream. Queer is often used as a catch-all to include many people, including those who don't identify as exclusively straight and or folks who have non-binary or gender-expansive identities. This term was previously used as a slur, but has been since reclaimed by many parts of the LGBTQ movement. Intersectionality is another word that people often have trouble with. Intersectionality is an analytical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identity combine to create different modes of discrimination and privilege. A black woman, for example, exists at the intersection of race and gender, existing as an oppressed person in both categories. Coming out is a phrase we all sort of understand, but I want to make clear what the definition is. It's the process in which a person first acknowledges, accepts, and appreciates their sexual orientation or gender identity and begins to share that with others. But I also want to explain sexual orientation and gender identity before we begin. Sexual orientation and gender identity are two different things, and the simplest way I've heard this put was by Janet Mock. She said, Sexual orientation is who we go to bed with, and gender identity is who we go to bed as. Today on The Soapbox, we're going to discuss anti-LGBTQ sentiment in the black community. My name is Baudelaire, and today on The Soapbox, we're going to discuss anti-LGBTQ sentiment in the black community. I certainly have held homophobic and transphobic beliefs in the past, but I hope to begin an internal conversation where we as a people can become more accepting of each other in all the forms that black people can come in. It's my soapbox. If you have important things to say, you use a soapbox. If now isn't a good time for the truth, I don't see when we're going to get to it. When beginning this conversation, I want to first acknowledge that I'm speaking to the homophobia and transphobia in my community because of the value I see in the lives of Black LGBTQ plus people. I'm not saying that the Black community is especially homophobic or we have a problem that no other community has. Essence actually did a short YouTube series on homophobia in the Black community, and in one of those videos, journalist Michael Arsenault made this point perfectly. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram. His handle on both is Young Cynic. Cynic is spelled S-I-N-I-C-K. The majority of the transphobia and homophobia that you will experience will be through other black people. Mm -hmm. I am a black man. Most of the homophobia that I've experienced has been through black people. Mm -hmm. That is because I've only been majority around black people. Mm -hmm. However, reality is, who is to say that black people are the most homophobic of the bunch? We're out here well, more than Well, perhaps then we're the most vocal about it. Yeah. Well, what's, I don't, I don't when you say we're vocal, but like, who are you talking to? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm stepping into a white space, 
I'm gonna get racism and homophobia and all types of other stuff. And even when you talk about the preservation of black masculinity, which is a very stupid hotep, I understand that, but that is also, you have to trace what that comes from. That is ultimately traced to like a white supremacist idea of like emasculating black men. It is up to black men and black women and black people together to challenge that and to let it be known that you do no longer have to live up to that what has been forced upon you. Right. But that alone does not mean we are more than anyone. With that being said, I want to explain my own personal journey to this understanding that I'm gaining. I started reading James Baldwin about six years ago. I read Fire Next Time and was immediately convinced that he was the greatest writer to ever live. Notes of a Native Son was the next book I read and that cemented the belief. The third book of his I bought, and at that point I was convinced I'd read all of them in succession, was Another Country. Another Country is a great book. It's initially about the downfall of a black drummer, Rufus Scott, but eventually becomes about his entire social circle of both black and white people in the 50s and their dynamics. I had to have read a few dozen pages when it was said that Rufus had a sexual relationship with one of his male friends. Now, I knew James Baldwin was gay, and maybe at the time I thought he wouldn't bring up homosexuality in his books, but that moment caused a pause in me. I didn't want to read a gay love story because I felt a gay love story wasn't for me. It was gross to me because I was convinced it was something I just couldn't relate to. I put the book down and didn't read another James Baldwin book for about a year. Then one day, I was talking to a couple of co-workers of mine, and one of which just so happened to be a gay black man. He was talking about his issues being single and dating in NYC. It was a regular conversation, jokes and all, and I found that, aside from his being attracted to men and my being attracted to women, we had pretty much the same grievances with the dating scene. We were all servers at the time, and anybody who's been a server knows how much time you have to talk, so it was an ongoing conversation for a little while. I didn't think too hard about the fact that my co-workers' dating experiences weren't too different until the next morning when I meditated. In meditation, I kind of reanalyzed the prior day's events and my attention focused on the conversation I had had with my coworkers. I reflected on how prior to that conversation, I had never talked to a gay person about what dating was like for them. And to be honest, I didn't care to ask. I didn't consider it homophobic because I considered myself a friend of a few gay people throughout my life. I felt my closed-mindedness was justified by my idea that it just wasn't my business. But in consciously closing out that arena of conversation, I didn't fully accept any of those people I considered myself a friend to. So I wasn't actually a friend. During meditation, I thought about another country and how, closed-mindedly, I stopped reading the book by the man I considered the greatest of all time, only because he included homosexuality. I realized how ridiculous that sounded. I believe it was James Baldwin himself who once said that you can't be an oppressor without imprisoning yourself. The oppressor-oppressed relationship is usually seen as entirely beneficial to the oppressor and detrimental to the oppressed, but that isn't so. The oppressor unknowingly boxes themselves in. In this case, when relating to the relationship between heterosexual black people and our LGBTQ plus siblings, our anti-gayness even created the no homo or pause culture where men are hyper-aware of even somehow being able to be misconceived as saying something that would allude to them being gay. I think of the Kanye line in Family Business where he says, you can still love your man and be manly, dog. We as men weren't saying and sometimes still don't say, I love you, because of this belief that it makes us less masculine. Imagine the mental prison of withholding I love you from those you do love. Speaking of Kanye... In 2005, he did this interview with Sway for MTV, 
where he discussed the effect homophobia had on his life as a heterosexual male. Everybody in high school be like, yo, you acting like a fag. You acting like, dog, you gay? And I used to deal with that when I was in high school. And what happened is it, um, it made me kind of like homophobic because it's like I would like go back and like question myself like, damn, why does everybody else walk like this and I walk like this? So why is then you start just looking? Because you don't realize until you're in high school. People are like, yo, fam, look at you. Look at how you act. If you see something and you don't want to be that because it's such a negative connotation towards it, you try to separate yourself from it so much that it made me homophobic. Mm-hmm. By the time I was through high school, like anybody that was gay, I was like, yo, get away from me. And really, like Tupac said, started hanging with the thugs. And you look up, and all my friends were like really thugged out. And it's kind of like I was racing to try, try to find that constant masculine role model right there to the point where it's like I would really discriminate. Like, I use the word fag, 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 like always condescending uh, towards gays and, and, look, and look down upon gays. And I mean, my cousin told me that another one of my cousins was gay. And at that point, it's kind of when the turning point where I was like, yo, yo, this is my cousin. I, I, I love him. Like, and I've been discriminating against gays. It's like, do I discriminate against my cousin? And then everything starts to click. You know, he brings his partner with him to, like, Thanksgiving and all that. Um, and you just had to sit back and think. Kanye touched on masculinity there, and I'd like to sit there for a second before we move on to what he said about his cousin. Like Michael Arsenault had said in the clip you heard earlier, there is a white supremacist idea of emasculating black men that dates back to slavery. We know that there are instances where white male slave masters, especially in the Caribbean, raped their black male slaves in front of the rest of the slaves to show them who was boss. In American film and television, the emasculation of black men has also been made into a sort of joke where you could see very muscular black men, uh, like a Terry Crews, for example, placed in roles where his femininity is painted as a joke juxtaposed against his large frame and dark skin. You never really see this with other races. But one thing, and I think the general society struggles with this understanding, is that men do not hold a monopoly over masculinity, and women do not hold a monopoly over femininity. As human beings, we're all a mixture of both, with some people being more on one side than the other, and gender does not prevent a cisgendered male from being perhaps more feminine than masculine, or a cisgendered woman from being more masculine than feminine. But to what Kanye said about his cousin, 3% of the black population in the U.S. identify as LGBTQ+. That sounds like a small number, but I bet you know a black person that identifies as LGBTQ+. You also probably have a family member who identifies as such, whether you know it or not. Coming out, as I defined at the top of this episode, is the process in which a person first acknowledges, accepts, and appreciates their sexual orientation. Those three words, acknowledges, accepts, and appreciates, are really important because nothing can help someone acknowledge, accept, and appreciate themselves more than being around genuine and unconditional love. There are black people like Donovan, who you're about to hear from, who feel that they were exposed to homophobia before even being exposed to racism, and this was by his own family. 
As someone who loves his family more than anything, that hurts my heart because I couldn't imagine unknowingly hurting my nieces, nephews, cousins, or any of my family members with my own ignorant language around something I didn't fully understand. This clip is from a roundtable discussion on black LGBTQ plus issues that was had on the YouTube platform, The Grapevine. Donovan can be found on IG at I underscore am underscore Donovan. I knew about the plight of black people via the lessons from my parents. But what I was exposed to earlier was homophobia as opposed to racism. Mm -hmm. I experienced that in my house. Like, I, I knew when I was about five. Like, I definitely knew that I was special. I knew that I was different. And I also knew that when my mother got pissed off about the gay character on TV, I had to excuse myself for the room. Yeah. I had to excuse myself from the room because I began to feel nauseous. I began to feel ill. I began to like feel physically sickened by the fact that my mother hates me. Um, so for me, I would definitely say like at around five, 10, you, re you really begin to learn that this world is not a safe space for me. It wasn't a safe space for me. I couldn't trust my family. We did a, a conversation about the attachment theory. And what I experienced was extreme security for the first couple of years of my life. And then when I became very, very aware of my homosexuality, it became a very, very unsafe place for me. So a lot of my work was about taking my foundation of receiving love and then trying to turn that in on myself once I realized that my parents didn't appreciate me because I could never be the son that they wanted. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I, I don't know if anybody else experienced that, but for me, I always felt a little bit more homophobia First, it wasn't until I became like a little bit more aware and in the public school space that I felt racism. We need to create safe spaces for all so everybody, especially those close to us, can be comfortable being their most genuine self. Some hold on to this notion that LGBTQ plus people are something new or that these people weren't born this way. But in my research, I only read about lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people who in their stories say they always remembered feeling the way they feel. We have to believe overwhelming evidence. For some reason, this is still a contested debate when LGBTQ plus people are answering the question for us. In her book, Janet Mock, a black trans woman, explains coming out to her mother as gay in the 90s, but feeling that there was more to her that she couldn't quite put her finger on. She didn't know trans people existed or was even exposed to the idea aside from seeing and occasionally cross-dressing. From reading her book, it seems she didn't understand that a person was even allowed to honestly feel that they were born in the wrong body. But this is also where educating ourselves about terms and LGBTQ plus history help our young people who may or may not be LGBTQ plus. But what we do know or claim is that we love them unconditionally. We can't then add a condition that we only love them if they fit into a box that we fully understand. Our black LGBTQ plus family is up against the same racism the rest of us are up against, a racism that's also present in the LGBTQ plus community at large as well, but plus a homophobia which forces them to navigate the world a different way than everybody else. In that same grapevine conversation, Corey L. Scott, a writer, community activist, and pastor, explained the complexities of that navigation. His social media handles are at Corey L. Scott. All of us exist at this intersection of blackness and queerness, mm -hmm. right? And we all know the black experience of having to navigate the world differently because we are black. Mm -hmm. We talk about that when we talk about how boys engage law enforcement. We talk about that when we, when we talk about um, empowering our girls in their, in their physical form. 
-hmm. right? That, that we have to navigate differently because we are black in an effort to protect ourselves mm -hmm. from the majority culture. Then you slap on top of that queerness mm -hmm. and I have to navigate not only that external oppression from the majority white or predominant white society, but I now have to even protect myself in the black culture where I thought there was comedy, where I thought there was safety, but I still experience oppression from being black and being gay, as well as that oppression heaped on me by people who share the same melanin count as I do. Last summer, summer 2020, Black Lives Matter protests were happening all across the country, and I loved seeing my people demand justice, not just for Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, but for all the black bodies we've lost during our centuries of dealing with white supremacy. But among the protests, every now and then I would see all Black Lives Matter signs. I felt almost offended by them, and this is me at the time in my pseudo support of the black LGBTQ plus community. I felt, why would you separate yourself from Black Lives Matter? Aren't you included in that? But what I've come to learn is all Black Lives Matter is their call for attention. I was unknowingly subscribing to the same thought process as the All Lives Matter crowd. The Black LGBTQ plus community had to make it clear that all Black Lives Matter because there is a well-grounded fear that even while amongst their own, and especially when they're not, they aren't safe. This fear is especially present for our trans siblings. The Black trans community faces obstacles in this society that no other group deals with. These numbers are from a report done by the National LGBTQ Task Force. Black transgender people have an extremely high unemployment rate at 26%, two times the rate of the overall transgender sample and four times the rate of the general American population. 41% of black trans respondents said that they had experienced homelessness at some point in their lives, more than five times the rate of the general U.S. population. Many black transgender people live in extreme poverty with 34% reporting a household income of less than $10,000 per year. This is more than twice the rate for transgender people of all races, which is 15%, four times the general black population rate, 9%, and eight times the general U.S. population rate of 4%. Black transgender people are also affected by HIV in devastating numbers also. More than 20% of respondents were living with HIV compared to a rate of 2.6% for transgender respondents of all races, 2.4% for the general black population, and 0.6% for the general U.S. population. Of America's estimated 1.6 million homeless youth, as many as 40% are LGBTQ+. Nearly a third of LGBTQ students are driven out of school, a dropout rate nearly three times the national average. But you could say, some of those are systemic issues that the black community specifically can't control. And maybe not entirely, but we can create more welcome spaces for our LGBTQ plus siblings so they don't have to run away from home or they could feel comfortable working with us and we could feel comfortable enough to work with and hire them. We can't have this feeling that there's something else entirely. Black trans people are black people and you can't say you love black people without also having love for the black trans community. We could do a much better job standing up for them in our homes, out in the streets, and in the voting booth. Journalist Michael Arsenault, who you heard earlier in this episode, discussed how aside from just needing to support all oppressed people when they face prejudice, voting in support of a form of prejudice will eventually come around to you. Well, when they put up the city ordinance, um, they made it essentially like, don't let men in 
girls' restrooms, uh -huh. which is a big misrepresentation of what you know being trans is. Right. But it that prejudice allowed people to vote against their own interests, mm -hmm. not realizing now that that law is not there, then that affects you. Mm -hmm. like, someone can easily turn that around about you. Like ultimately, this is still a prejudice and it's a conservative movement pushing that prejudice that will eventually kind of like be used back to you because in some ways like trans are facing, like trans people are facing another thing, I'm facing something as a gay man, I'm facing it as a black person. Mm -hmm. It's all interconnected. Absolutely. So people need to be very aware of like when you vote for one prejudice, it's giving somebody permission to then put that on you. And while we're talking about laws oppressive against the black trans community and trans people in general, I want to explain to you something called the trans panic defense. I'll let Seth Rogen of the LGBTQ Bar Association begin. It's when a jury is asked to find that the gender or sexual orientation of a victim is the cause for their assault, including their murder. It is not a standalone legal defense, but it's used with other defenses at trial. And it's not a complete bar to criminal liability, but it's used as part of the story that the, uh, that the defendant is telling a child to explain their actions. In these cases, people are assaulted, they're murdered, and their assailant then gets to say, I lost control because of you. I committed these heinous acts because of who you you are intrinsically. We don't have this defense uh, for uh, cisgender people or heterosexual people. We don't say, oh, your heterosexuality made me kill you. An example of this defense at use is the case of James Dixon. James Dixon was convicted of killing a trans black woman by the name of Islan Nettles. Islan was leaving a club when she was approached by Dixon. After a brief conversation, a friend of Dixon's yelled that Nettles was a trans woman, no doubt in a transphobic manner. And Dixon then lashed out and beat Nettles to death. What you're about to hear is Dixon telling his story at the precinct. I happened across the street thinking that two other people were, were um, females, which they weren't. And we engaged in conversation. And I guess uh, a friend of mine must have realized, you know, that was a, a guy instead of a girl. And, he yelled out, you know, what it was. You know, as I pushed away, you know, trying to leave, I guess he, he must have pushed back, you know, while I was, was drunk. So I got enraged, you know, and then I attacked. I didn't want it to turn out to be a hate crime. Um, I mean, I'm, I don't go around gay bashing people. I don't care about what they do. But I'm, I just didn't, you know, didn't want to be fooled, you know. I, I, Dixon says he doesn't care about what gay people do. He didn't want to be fooled. His pride was at stake. The fact he could claim his pride was at stake is what's most troubling in his version of the story. Also, in his story, he claimed he doesn't go around gay bashing people and he doesn't care what they do. If you notice, he said this dismissingly and as someone who just beat a trans woman to death with his hands, he clearly does care about what LGBTQ plus people do. But back to the trans panic defense. Dixon went on to claim that he attacked Nettles out of rage over her being a trans woman. This defense helped Dixon be sentenced to 12 years for the murder rather than the minimum of 17. Even 17 would be light, but the fact that he could use Nettles' own identity against her when she had not provoked his attack and he murdered her is an injustice that we just can't stand for. Currently, the trans panic defense is legal in all but 10 states. But the idea of the trans panic defense is something you may hear in our community among men. Men will see a trans woman that they think is attractive. And when they find out that the person they see is trans, 
they say something like, oh, nah, I'd go to jail or something else that insinuates that they would turn violent. Well, the truth is that some heterosexual men are attracted to trans women. We have to acknowledge that exists and recognize the humanity in trans people to understand that exists. This idea that trans women are fooling every man they sleep with is ridiculous. And even if a man does find out that the person he's interested in is trans, he has to either accept the trans woman for who she is or simply leave the situation. There's just no excuse for violence in that scenario. Violence against black members of the LGBTQ community, which is disproportionately against black trans women, must stop entirely. Language that creates an environment that allows for the passivity against trans violence must also stop. In Caribbean culture, and I could speak best for Haitian culture, there's a strong amount of anti-LGBTQ plus energy. And Doreen Pierre, or It's Doreen Pierre on social media, explained the unique experience of being a Caribbean member of the Black LGBTQ plus community in that same conversation with the grapevine. Um, just blackness and maybe homophobia. So like me growing up, I actually am a child of Haitian immigrants. So I didn't really, and my mom, she became a single, single parent afterwards, like with me and my brother. However, I think her, the way she rooted herself in American culture was to protect us, right? So she didn't really allow us to associate with our blackness in the way that I think I would, would have liked to, or even my own culture. It was more so like, you go to school, you go to church, you're protected, you come home, and that was it. Um, and so in that, I don't feel like I had seen anybody that was like me. So when I started to have feelings of, of attraction for women, I had nobody to really turn to. It was more so like I had tried to like pray it away or say like, this can't be me, this can't be me because I can't stand out, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was like, right. And so it was just like, for me, it was just like the issue of isolation came because of that, because I didn't know who to model after. I didn't know, you know, who to turn to. And if I turned to my mother, it would have been an issue. Um, and even coming out to her, she's like, well, don't get the surgery. She's like thinking that I'm, I'm trans when I never said that. So it's like this jumping to conclusion or you want to be a son because you cut your hair this way. Um, so there was, there's also nuances in that in my Caribbean heritage um, where I think a lot of the homophobia came for me. Um, was that my parents really didn't have an understanding of what queerness was. I didn't really have exposure to queerness until high school and college, where I had to kind of explore that for myself. Um, And that was, like, the major breaking point in me in in knowing who I was, was Mm -hmm. through chosen family and through community spaces where I could actually be myself um, and be open to new ideas and new perspectives. There's this idea amongst many Caribbeans and even our African families still on the continent that feel that homosexuality is something that in itself is un-African or something that isn't a natural part of our societies pre our interaction with the Western world. That couldn't be further from the truth, though. What I'm about to read is from Stonewall.org. Quote, Prior to European colonization, throughout the African continent, we see far different, more relaxed attitudes towards sexual orientation and gender identity. As far back as 2400 B.C., Tombs have been excavated in ancient Egypt with two men's bodies embracing each other as lovers. In addition to their acceptance of same-sex relationships, ancient Egyptians, similar to other civilizations at the time, not only acknowledged the third gender, but venerated. Many deities were portrayed androgynously, and goddesses such as Mut, the goddess of motherhood, and Sekhmet, the goddess of war, are often depicted as women with erect penises. This wasn't unique to Egypt or this time period. In the 16th century, 
The Imbangala people of Angola had men and women's apparel with whom they kept amongst their wives. In contrast, King Henry VIII had just signed the Buggery Act in 1533 in England, which criminalized sex between two males. The last men to be sentenced to death by hanging in England were in 1835 for engaging in homosexual sex, whilst, at the same time, there was an openly gay monarch, King Mwanga of Buganda, present-day Uganda, who actively opposed Christianity and colonialism, unquote. What LGBTQ support is, at least from my vantage point, is less taking the microphone at rallies because, honestly, like we feel with pro-black movements, those should be the spaces for members of that community to lead and speak to their experience, and the rest of us listen. David Johns, the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition, explained this concept of coming in to foster a better relationship between heterosexual and LGBTQ plus black people. Words matter, right? Inviting in as a construct is important because it highlights the importance of a bilateral relationship uh, and the need for two people to be engaged in this process of having conversations and making space for each other. I don't owe you an explanation of who I love. Um, however, comma, uh, if you do the work required um, to learn some language, to leverage our friend Google, um, and to, again, think about uh, diverse experiences, then we might be able to engage in this conversation where I will invite you in. Uh, and the hope is that if I invite you in, you will invite me in as well, and we can have conversations about things that are important to you, um, but might otherwise be difficult for you to think about discussing. Now, I know I spoke a lot of safe spaces and educating yourself in this episode, and you may be wondering, how exactly do you do that? Well, the first place I would start is that conversation on the grapevine. I, I didn't pull all the great bits from that episode because there was just so much. There's also a bunch of books like Another Country and Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, Redefining Realness by Janet Mock, uh, Disclosure and The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, which are both on Netflix, are two good documentaries. And I, I should also note, and I'm sure it's clear here, that I'm still learning, so feel free to send resources my way also. Our job as heterosexual black people is to make our common spaces as welcoming as possible, which includes making it clear when we hear violent language or violent suggesting language used when referring to our people in the LGBTQ plus community, that that language isn't acceptable and we have to explain why. This is the burden that rests on our shoulders, which isn't as heavy as the burden of those people who are members of the LGBTQ plus community that haven't come out the closet or those who have and are subject to violent language and actual violence just for being who they are. It's insane that we can sometimes dismiss actual violence and in certain instances murder of someone who wasn't hurting anybody being their most honest self. This violence, like the violence we typically call out against black people, will suffocate this society if allowed to continue. We must all look within ourselves and see where, as people who are subjected to passive oppression every day in this country, where we ourselves can take on the suit of oppressor when it comes to our smaller circles. We need to stand up for our LGBTQ plus family because they've been there for us. I'm talking about people like Bayard Rustin, who was a key advisor to Martin Luther King Jr., James Baldwin, Langston Hughes, Angela Davis, Alice Walker, and George Washington Carver. Black Lives Matter was even started by two queer women, Alicia Garza and Patrice Cullors. Black LGBTQ plus people have also contributed to black culture in a unique way. I'm talking about people like Billie Holiday. Audre Lorde, and Willie Ninja's impact on black and American culture that just can't be measured. Today, you also have someone like Lena Waithe, who, in my opinion, is one of the greatest black people in Hollywood with her show The Shy, that's a must-watch, 
and stars in Master of None, specifically Season 2, Episode 8, where Lena plays a lesbian friend of Nev who invites him over to the first Thanksgiving in which she also invites her partner. The episode actually won with an Emmy. To progress as a people, we need all hands on deck. We need a radical form of black love where that love comes before any preconceived notions we may have about any subsection amongst us. Love them enough to, through the questions, take the journey with them, not shun or shame them. Me personally, I love all black people, and I don't think we as a people can afford to ignore the black LGBTQ plus community when they say things like all black lives matter. Their lives do matter as much as ours. And for Black Lives Matter itself to stand as a factual phrase, then we need to do better by our lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer people. Cornell West once said, You can't lead our people if you don't love our people. Now, I'm no leader. Rather, I have this platform where I hope, above all else, to educate and enlighten my people. But I'd be doing a disservice to not just my siblings within the LGBTQ plus community, but to all black people if I didn't address our treatment of our LGBTQ plus siblings and explain clearly how we can do better. Black LGBTQ plus liberation is not a distraction from black liberation, but rather it's an essential part of black liberation. Their safety is our safety and we must continue to educate ourselves and have the internal conversations to break down the walls that still remain. Let me also just add that I included all the people referenced in this episode's social media handles so those of you who are looking for additional resources to better understand the black LGBTQ plus experience can go and follow them if you choose. You can go to Bonos.com for the full versions of all the audio clips used in this episode. That's B-A-U-K-N-O-W-S dot com. And as is the case with all episodes of La Soapbox, I'm welcoming opinions, questions, concerns, whatever. I'll just record voice memos on your phone and email them to thesoapboxpod at gmail.com. That's the soapbox pod at gmail.com and you can also follow me on instagram that's at bo knows b-a-u-k-n-o-w-s again and on twitter at baudelaire that's b-a-u-d-e-l-a-i-r-e the soapbox merch can also be found at bonos.com thank you for listening to the soapbox Precisely what they think they are. Love mm-hmm. is where you find it. And you don't know where you don't know where it will carry you. And it is a terrifying thing, love. It is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. And a man can fall in love with a man, a woman can fall in love with a woman. There's nothing nothing anybody can do about it. It's not in the province of the law. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you do with the church. Mm-hmm. And if you lie about that, if you lie about that, you lie about everything. Mm-hmm. And no one has a right to try to tell another human being whom he or she can or should love.